Welcome to episode 38 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my healthy co-hosts Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie, how's it going tonight? Pretty good. Other than some uh, travel fatigue, I'm doing really good. So uh, That's good to hear. Chris, how about you? Uh, feeling a lot better than I was the other week. Uh, just getting over whatever the hell that I was coming off of. Something nasty. You're back on your own two feet and uh, working? Uh, kind of. Well, this week will be for sure. Okay. Well, that's good. So, uh, what's new, guys? Because I've been in and out of being sick and stuff, I got a little extension on the Johnny Five part, so I'm pretty much all done except for two simple ops I need to do. I need to tap and do the uh, uh, bridge port drilling of that big hole, and then I can put it in the box and ship it over to them. Um, yeah, I felt really bad, but I talked to Ed about it. Just that. I just had a really nasty uh, sickness thing that just kept me in, in and out of uh, shopping on the bed for a while. So he was uh, understanding about that, so I appreciate that. Do you know if the part is critical at all to the assembly? Like, is it something they can integrate pretty late? Yeah, he said it wasn't something that they needed right now because it's not part of, like, the main assembly. It's it's the thing that holds his toolbox, the laser toolbox. Yeah. So... I mean, without my part, I'm kind of the hinge, so they can't put the rest, but I don't think it's going to be part of like the main assembly thing they're doing soon. So it I sounds got... like they can assemble everything before it and after it independently. Yeah, it's like that little thing that swivels up and down when he wants to blow people up. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's pretty much my, my update. Um, nothing, nothing special and, and just, man, I've never been this sick in my life. So what about you, Eddie? Well, I just got back from uh, Saunders Machine Works in, in uh, Zanesville. Had a really good four days out there. Well, really three days plus travel. Um, I went out there mainly to to uh, take a class on fixturing and advanced cam. Uh, one thing I didn't realize, I guess I've read this in the agenda but missed it. I didn't realize we'd actually get to be running machines out there. So that was kind of really exciting. Um, got to run the VF2 out there, make some parts and... How'd you like it? Yeah, class was great. Uh, the instructor was uh, Kevin Ellingson. I think you guys probably know him as at uh, Mech Advantage on Instagram, M E C H V A N T A G E. So I ran into him in uh, I think AU and Portland the last two times we went to uh, Autodesk events. Really nice guy. Enjoyed talking to him. I attended his session in Portland, so I kind of wanted to uh, get into deeper topics with them. So this was really, this was to me a really good class. It was perfect mix of uh, work and fusion and actually being on the machine, hands-on making something. So I definitely recommend it. And I think uh, John Saunders has a couple of other classes. Well, one actually that exists and hopefully one that's gonna come in the future. But um, so he's got a five axis class that he just started that uh, I think I will attend probably sometime next year. So I actually went out there with a friend. I went with uh, Yaniv, who's uh, at YGUR on Instagram. So we, we both are kind of, well, he already got his machine and I'm about to, but uh, he just got a Ruther S500 in his garage and I've got the Neo coming. So we were both kind of thinking we should be taking this this time to kind of up our game a little bit on the training side. So worked out worked out really well. Uh, I think we'll both be back for more training out there. So training aside, just spending time out 
at the shop that I've watched so many times, so many hours on Instagram was kind of surreal, but really good. You know, it was really great to actually see the place in person and talk to John and Ed and uh, the rest of the team out there. Really interesting stuff they have going on out there. And of course I got to see Johnny five or <laughs> partially assembled Johnny five and, and all the parts I think that, uh, that they were kind of teasing this week for the uh, next unwrapping. So I think you guys, I think most of our listeners know John Saunders just got a, a new Haas uh, ST20Y lathe. So he was actually running some of the first uh, real parts on that while I was there. So I got to kind of talk to him about that and watch him run one of the parts. There's something about watching lathe, you know, turning metal. It's just, I don't know. It's like one of my favorite things to watch. So that was kind of special. It also, I just heard him on the podcast say something I never thought he'd say. And he, he said that he loves the lathe. <laughs> yeah, he definitely does. Just seeing the enthusiasm, you know, John with the new machine doing something new was, that was kind of special too. Yeah. I'm looking forward to feeling that myself pretty soon. Speaking of which, uh, that would be probably mid February, a pretty firm date for delivery of the machine. Very nice. Which is my, my, uh, signal to take care of the last few Pinting things like uh, lining up the riggers and getting everything ready as far as the uh, delivery itself goes. So timing works out just right. Have you been able to work out with your uh, client like when you're able to start work? Because uh, I think you were saying you wanted to like leave about a month to just learn and get proficient on the machine. Yeah, um, which is kind of worked out because I think there's a lot of uh, stuff going on on his end. Some changes that so he's actually building out a new... Uh, commercial space. So he's, everything's kind of running a little bit behind for him too. So it worked out pretty well as far as, uh, holding off until the machine gets here. Yeah. He's, uh, I keep him up to date on, you know, when I hear from Daytron, he knows from me when the, when the machine's going to, you know, what my latest estimate is on the machine delivery. So nice. That's good. I really just asked that because, uh, I want to make sure that there's time for me and Chris to sneak out there and, uh, jump on the machine. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, there definitely will be. Um, so you know, I think I've mentioned it on the earlier episode, but I plan on kind of ramping up slowly as far as commercial work. Uh, Got to build up some competency with that machine before I kind of commit taking on too many uh, commercial commitments. So there'll be plenty of uh, fun parts to make probably the first month or so. You know, okay, I have a question because the the way that you've done this is that you've kind of established yourself and you got the work first and then you realize that there was enough work to basically pay for the machine now what if you're somebody who doesn't have that client but you think that if you bought the machine you could get the clients like i'm i'm kind of in that boat where i'm thinking you know if you build it they will come kind of situation but i want to talk to you too about what you think about that strategy or is it too much of a risk i know in my brain right now i can hear saunders saying no 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 because that's that's like going to the debt for something that you don't even have work for. But I'm just curious, you know, like if, if I have the skill and ability and I have a place to put the machine, do you think that it's a good idea to kind of take a small chance on that to see if I could build something to pay the, the monthly, whatever the, uh, the bill for the machine is? Or do you think it's safer to, you know, do it your way? You nailed it as far as it's a question of risk and, and what you're willing to take on. But um, in my case, like I, I definitely don't have enough work lined up to pay like for the whole machine. Um, all, like I don't have 100% of the machine covered as far as expected upcoming work, but I've got a piece of it, right, from one client and, or likely, you know, likely to be a good chunk of it there. 
Um, and also I kind of looked at that factor plus basically the work that I've turned down over the last 18 months that I could have done on the Neo if I had it. Um, I don't see any reason for like just kind of the rate at which RFQs come in from various clients to kind of be all that different from what it's been in the last two years unless we go into like an economic downturn. And the rest is going to be, you know, I've got my own projects, I'm sorry, my own uh, products to work on, which is going to kind of offset, you know, that's money I would have potentially had to spend elsewhere that I can now knock out the prototypes and maybe some small production volume on my machine. So those three factors kind of help me feel comfortable with going ahead with the purchase. But like you were saying, if you have a payment, then the risk is, you know, we being enough to make that payment and, or what's your runway for, you know, basically if you don't get the anticipated work on the timeline that you expect, how much are you willing to kind of carry that machine, right? For future opportunities. Right. So you don't want to get yourself into trouble, right? Where you can't make the payment and they come and take away the machine. That's like the worst case scenario. So. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I have enough to be able to cover the machine indefinitely. It's just, that's not a good business plan, right? Like, I mean, that's a good business plan if you intend to just do it for fun, right? And you're just paying for a hobby type of thing, but it's not a good business plan model if I want to make something out of this. So, um, I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking, what are my choices? What are my options? Should I take the risk? Um, I believe in myself, you know, I, I know that if I did it, I'd figure it out and I'd beg for work somehow, but, um, just kind of get your ideas. Like what do you guys think? Yeah. And I think, you know, it's probably more a question like for someone like you who kind of at the skill level you're at, it's probably more a question of which machine than should I get a machine. Right. So I think you could make anything work. Um, just really how much, how much uh, exposure do you want either debt or, you know, if you're basically committing a large part of your savings to buying a machine outright, um, just how much risk are you comfortable with? Uh, yeah, you don't have to go buy a Neo. You know, there's lots of other <laughs> choices in between. Um, and I, I wouldn't have a problem buying used either, uh, if as long as I trusted the source and everything. Yeah, I think that's actually a pretty good way to go. Um, but would you be limiting yourself to machines that you can fit in a garage? Because that does kind of like shift the scales back in the direction of the Neo. Yeah, if if I went full out on this, I would find a real shop for this place or for the machine, you know, and I would start building an empire type of thing. I, I wouldn't throw this in my garage. Well, Speedio obviously fits in a garage. you <laughs> has <laughs> got one in his and uh, yeah, I mean, there's actually quite a few machines, mini mill, um, Haas mini mill, all kinds of stuff. There's lots of good choices. Uh, really depends on what you're going to be doing with it. Like um, I, I have an affinity towards high RPM spindles, so that kind of narrows the choice for me, but, uh, and I wanted the fourth axis. So that was kind of well integrated with the, the overall package. Yeah. What I really want is probably a five axis machine that about in the same price range as the Neo. So is my second machine. So we'll kind of see where that goes. Um, that also fits in the garage, right? So it's kind of, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't think, uh, Haas is coming out with like a, a UMC 250, do you? Yeah, no. I'm pretty sure the like looking at the 500 um, that I've seen, you know, there's been some, I think they've been showing off at some events. So I get a good idea. Like there's people standing in front of the machine. So I, now I kind of see how big it is. I haven't actually looked up the dimensions, but it still looks too big to fit in the garage, especially with the mismanagement piece on the top. Um, I don't know. What about you, Winston? Because you and I are in the same boat now. We don't have a nice indus industrial machine coming in. How, where do you feel on all this? 
Well, so I'm going at this from a slightly different angle because my business plans don't really revolve around like products or job shop work. So I'm really just looking at something from a personal capability standpoint um, because like content is basically going to be my product for at least at least the next couple of years. Um, and as much as I would drool over a Neo or like even a mini mill or something, I can't see myself stepping up to that level. Um, I think I can be pretty happy with like sub 15 grand machines for, for the next two or three years. Um, and that's really just down to the kind of work that I'm doing. It's a little aluminum, uh, a lot of wood, plastic, mixed materials, um, very little steel. And in those cases, I think I can do pretty well with like a, a sturdy router type setup. And uh, going forward, I think 2020 is going to be the year I finally jump on the VFD spindle bandwagon. And I will probably also start looking into uh, like a, a mist coolant setup. So uh, ethanol or isopropyl. Um, I'm not going to go full Vince Fab and put linear rails on my Shaboko. But um, I do want to try and slowly step things up a little, get a little more productivity out of my garage, and then also uh, maybe get a spindle for the machine in the Carbide 3D shop and just really try and uh, take things to the next level. But it's, it's a linear increase. It's not like an exponential jump. Like your home shop, you're going from like a Nomad Pocket NC and the next thing you acquire, I'm sure, will be more than triple the capability of what you have in your living room. So, um, I, baby steps for me, especially because just, like, career-wise, I'm a little behind where you two are. So, I don't know. It's a different perspective. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally understand that. I think for me, I think you nailed it. Like, I want to be more productive. You know, nothing against these machines or anything. They're amazing. I love them. It's just I, I need to be more productive because time is something that I cannot increase. And right now I'm limited on time. So therefore, I need something faster. I need to be able to pump these products or these things out that I'm doing faster. And if I can't, then it's it's... That's the, what's holding me back. So that's why I've been contemplating, like, I need to just jump in again headfirst and get something more serious, uh, get something running, and then, like, you know, increase my productivity, increase my work. Like, I'll be able to get more stuff in, get more stuff out. And I think, you know, it would eventually, hopefully, at least just pay for the machine. I, I think I'll, I should be able to do better than that, but I'd be happy of just breaking even so I wouldn't have to put my own personal money into paying for the machine's rent. Yeah, the the time is kind of the, the biggest thing right now because for me, it's I can come up with an idea in a day or two, I can generate the tool paths, I feel proficient in fusion, but in order to realize my designs and then iterate on them, I, I have to create them. And creating them is kind of the bottleneck for me right now because you can only load material so fast, you're limited to what the machine can, can handle from a material removal standpoint. So uh, just having a bigger machine frees up about a third of the time. Like if you think about where you invest your time, it's the design, the cam, and the actual machining. So if you can dramatically speed up machining, that's like 30% more time that you can fold into everything else. 
Yeah, and as you as you start working with like bigger bigger parts, you know that machining the machining part of the time basically, you know the other two are kind of linear or they're kind of stable, right? Probably doesn't take that much more time to cam up a twenty inch by twenty inch part than it does a one inch by one inch, but uh, the machining time certainly is going to be different. So, yeah, that's the other thing. The um, the size of my projects has primarily been limited by how much time I want to invest in it. So uh, that's another thing that I actually haven't given much thought to just because like when I design something, I just naturally scale my ambitions to what I want to invest in it time-wise. But if I had a beefier machine, a bigger machine, that would change the kinds of things that I want to make. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, kind of you know, I, I've had stuff that uh, I've designed or thought about and maybe played around with a little bit in Fusion that I just know that, like, I'm not going to go any further because it's just way way too slow or too big to make on one of my machines here, my existing machines. Um, usually material removal is the, the main uh, obstacle to kind of making the part that I want to make uh, for the ones that, you know, basically I just think about and don't follow through on, so... I'm going to have to recalibrate that scale once I get the Neo as far as what's possible. So yeah, I mean, just being around the, the Haas machines and the, even the Tormox um, in class at Saunders shop kind of is really nice to be working with machines that just get it done and get it done fast. You know, and it, that translates into programming, you know, like I, I don't have to do adaptives all the time because we have no horsepower. You know, when, when we have a real machine, I can just go in there with a straight up pocketing and just rough everything out way faster than I, and I don't need to do the tricordial stuff. So I, I think there's a lot of gain in time, which is why I think it's worth it. Because even though I'm spending more money on this machine, I'll be able to make more money because I have more time. So I, I think the productivity outweighs that kind of risk in that sense, but um, this is a lot to think about. So just kind of getting everyone's opinion. Yeah, well, just my <laughs> specific to uh, adaptive clearing, I would still that's still my go-to even on on the bigger machines, just because uh, I still think it outperforms all the other ones. Um, nice thing is you can actually go full depth of cut, you know, on the bigger machines adaptive. Bury that tool in there. We uh, mo most of the programming we did, almost all the. Uh, uh, roughing was adaptive and that's kind of I, I guess that's the standard even for the production parts they're doing over there i guess uh toolpath generation time i guess it also depends you know what i mean like if we're working on a, like a simple block yeah it, it would take no time to generate but i don't know a lot of the small stuff that i do it takes forever to generate sometimes but if i had if i didn't have to use adaptive i could have got away with it much faster but you're right the mmr is probably still superior in adaptive and stuff but toolpath generation is still limited by not my computer because i know it's way more powerful than uh, it needs to be but it still takes a while to generate part of that is is due to the fact that your optimal load has to be like microscopic right and, and you're and you're probably making multiple passes you know if you can do it uh, yeah. in one depth right it's like i might do six six z level drops for my adaptive clearing where on a bigger machine i could do that i could get right to the floor in the first cut that's like one sixth of the time <laughs> calculation time and everything else uh, yeah. machining time yeah. and then the yeah the bigger step over and the bigger tool you can use it it actually goes, um, I think the, what we experience is not the norm for adaptive clearing. So, you know, our tiny little step overs and 
and many, many passes, uh, many, many Z heights really kind of is not the ideal for the calculation perspective, but it doesn't seem to be the norm on the bigger machines. They started letting me uh, set up the micron at work and stuff. So now I'm, I'm getting a real taste for speed and it's starting to affect me mentally in a good way. Yeah. So on that graph, when you're machining graphite, do you pretty much cut at the top feed rate that the machine can handle? I mean, it's almost like cutting air, right? Uh, it's, it, it's almost like cutting air. It's just very brittle. So you have to be careful uh, if you have thin features or if you don't have enough meat, the thing will, sh will break off because it's, it's brittle, but it, it machines easy. I mean, I'm, I'm burying that thing and I'm going like 200 inches a minute, um, full depth, you know, pretty decent width. Um, and then going back in to finish and everything because the graphite's so abrasive, the end mills get dull really fast, even with the diamond coating that we use. I wouldn't have actually expected that from uh, graphite. I, I guess I haven't machined enough of it, but I didn't uh, consider tool wear at all uh, compared to like G10 or FR4. It's very bad. Like we we have roughers that so we specific we alternate. So we'll bring a new tool uh, end mill in to be the finisher, use it just for a few times, and then it basically turns into a rougher. And we just keep rotating these tools out so that they don't get super dull. Because once they get super dull, like uh, they start screeching when you mill them, like graphite and stuff. And it, it gets. I mean, it'll still cut. It's just it's not nice. Yeah, we we buy diamond coating and it's expensive man and we go through that so quickly so yeah got to i think i mentioned i got to see all the uh the latest johnny five parts that were un unpackaged this week when i stepped saw your parts there winston so i know or, i mean your state of uh, completeness on the on your yep, assigned johnny five feels part. good <laughs> yeah so i think uh chris and i are still uh working on ours and i was hoping to take mine with me um when i went on the trip and i was close <laughs> but i had uh, some gouges during finishing that i'm like uh, i'm not taking this part so I, i'll be remaking it this week um i figured out what I was, was just, the cause of that was it like too deep a cut or uh... i'm not exactly sure but uh, I, I have this problem when i run parallel like at the edges where it's kind of transitioning and coming back it kind of it's like it doesn't go all the way off the end of the stock and it tries to do its turn and it's still engaged in the material and it just leaves these little like sawtooth gouges along the edge. So uh, I either need to extend, like do tangential extension or use a different finishing strategy. So I don't use parallel. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, oh, sorry. I was just saying, you remember that trick that Saunders showed? I think it was Saunders. Uh, where you copy offset the surface to zero and then you can extend that surface out like another eighth inch or something and then you choose that as your parallel surface and that will keep that from it'll remove all that n nastiness at the edge because it'll go way past that and stuff usually like i can deal with the well like on the other finishing tool pass if i'm getting issues like that it's usually because i don't have the contact point boundary checked um or or does the opposite right it drops off the edge when you don't want it to but um i've Pretty much, you know, I can, I'm comfortable with all the ones, other ones, but I don't run parallel enough to like, just know that I've set it up right. So, um, and I look at it in simulation, it looks like it's going to be okay. And it's, it almost was, it was just like, not quite. So and I want it to be perfect. So, um, I'm going to go back and, and run it again. And we actually covered, uh, all the finishing strategies for three axis while we were in class. So I learned some tips that will make it run even better. So, um, so I don't know, I, this isn't new because I think uh, Rob Lockwood posted about it 
but uh, for whatever reason, I never can seem to remember it when I need it. But if you get um, if you get kind of those weird kind of weird tool moves and and uh, tiny little like the tools, like especially on finishing, is just kind of going through and touching a little area and then moving on. It's like doing a bunch of weird stuff at the edge um, edge of your model. That's usually because of the fusion converts your model to like an STL as it's machining it, figuring out the toolpath. And there's a little bit of a noise, right? Depending on your tolerance, there's a little bit of noise in the triangles where the, you know, what you're thinking of is like a solid edge of the part is really probably if you zoomed in, it'd be like, uh, you can't really see it, but if you looked at the STL model, it'd be like a little, uh, like ocean surface, right? It'd be a little, right, like the mesh. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And there's a little bit of a uh, noise in that. So, yeah, so basically, um, you can go into the geometry tab on the toolpath that you're setting up. Um, there's usually a additional offset field. I don't know if it's there for all the operations, but the ones that have it, you can put minus tolerance. That's T-O-L-E-R-A-N-C-E, all over case. Negative tolerance. When you're selecting your, your boundaries, like your silhouette or like a contour or profile? I think it works on any of them. Um, doesn't really matter how you're doing your selection, but that will take off just the right amount to kind of deal with that noise. So, uh, cause the noise is sensitive to your tolerance and basically how it meshes the STL from your B rep is going to be finer or coarser, depending on your tolerance setting on the passes tab. And then you do this additional offset, uh, negative, the exact same amount. Um, but you can actually just use the variable tolerance instead of remembering it and keying in the number. And it'll, uh, it's like magic. <laughs> it just kind of cleans up the toolpath. Um, so anyway, that was, that was like the trick, my, my main takeaway, uh, that I'll be using from this point forward or the best one I should say for me, cause I have that problem. I run into problems with that all the time and I know there's a solution and I never can like find it when I need it. So, um, <laughs> now I have it, I have the recipe now, so. Yeah, I, that's interesting. I, I know I have a couple of toolpads in my brain for projects that have those weird little things. I'm, I'm curious to go back and try this little trick now, see if I fix that. Actually, where I see it most often, uh, or the you know the bad result is um, more on adaptive clearing than anything else. So I'm gonna try, I think it works for that too, but I haven't tested it. Um, like you just see all these little stupid moves that it does. Some of them you can't do anything about because some of it's just part of the algorithm, but some of them, you know, the ones around the edges, I'm pretty sure are being driven by this, uh, basically the quality of the mesh that it's trying to deal with. So mm-hmm. I'll see if that fixes that. I have a bunch of examples of that that I can go test and see if this cleans it up. Um, but then in class, we were actually doing it in the context of finishing passes uh, with other ops. So I don't, I can't say for sure if it works with adaptive, but I will, I will have an update next time. Very cool. Yeah. So that's, um, so that was the saga of my, uh, my Johnny Five part trying to rush it like literally the night before I was flying out. And uh, I think on the last podcast we talked about like my main challenge was getting that center bore done. And actually uh, I was successful with that and I hit the tolerances. There's a little bit, I ended up doing it two-sided, um, but there's a little bit of a parting line, like right um, about a third of the way in on this, like when I flipped it over, because I'm able to go like two thirds into the hole from the top and um basically align the there's some critical features that have to be that hole has to be in the center of so i'm able to get those all done in one op and i flip it over to finish the hole on the bottom um take off like the last third of that 
or from the other side. And that's pretty, I was happy with that. Like that's really, really where I thought I was going to have problems. And then I finished that and I was like, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake now. And I just do, all I had was like really easy stuff and that's where it got messed up. So um, <laughs> <laughs> it's always like that, right? Yeah. Yep, always. <laughs> yeah. So I, I spent a lot of time worrying about something that actually worked fine the first time. Um, yeah, the main, the main thing that made it work for me was uh, I didn't realize I had actually had a tool long enough to go most of the way into that bore. And it was not a, it wasn't a long reach. It was just like a big one eighth inch uh, or long one eighth inch uh, cutter that had like 1.125 inches of flute length, um, which actually for whatever reason you think that would have not been as strong or not as rigid as the uh, long reach stub, but it actually was. So, I mean, I, I was still getting some chatter with it, but I would have been getting chatter way sooner, like much shallower in the hole with the other tool. I don't know if it was just the, I don't know really what made the difference, but anyway, so that, that was kind of good recipe for that hole for me. Hmm, I'm glad that worked out. You know, subjectively, I feel like I've, I've noticed the same thing too. I've got a long reach stub, uh, Harvey tool. I think it's 1.125 or 1.25 inch reach. And in aluminum, it has a, a fairly high frequency vibration. And I'm wondering if, if it's just like the rigidity of that tool actually uh, moves the resonance point closer to where you're actually cutting. So having more flutes might actually be more advantageous for our kinds of machines. Yeah, I mean, it's weird. Usually my experience is the opposite, like the long flutes are less rigid, but in this, at least in the eighth inch tool, um, this one actually held up pretty well. Are there any other, uh, cam tips out of curiosity that you picked up or like, like, a, do you have a other profound takeaway? I'm curious, like what exactly is in this class that you took? There's really two kind of major subject areas. The first was just work holding and that was probably not even a third of the class. It was just, you know, a pretty good overview of the various work holding strategies from, uh, you know, the double-sided super glue tape trick all, um, to pretty much the assortment of Mighty Bite work holding clamps that are out there. There's a bunch of them, right? And where you would use them. And then uh, soft jaws and the cam involved in uh, making them match your part. And some of the, you know, the rules of thumb around like should be shooting for three points of contact and no more, no less. So that was, that was kind of the work holding part, which was really good because it was a good place to ask questions. Like if you had some questions about a particular work holding strategy or product, um, Kevin was very knowledgeable about pretty much everything out there, uh, including some of the vice stuff. And the rest of it was, uh, we basically cammed up two projects. One was one of the Autodesk sample parts. And then another one was, uh, the part we were actually going to make in the shop. So it was, uh, we made the fixture, uh, basically a talon. Mighty Bike Talon and uh, Pitbull fixture for machining a bottle opener out of aluminum. So we made, you know, machined and assembled the fixture and then used it to make the actual bottle holder. And we got to take both the fixture and the bottle holder home. So it was good. Uh, and we got to use the mod vice, the Saunders mod vice to hold everything. So that was hold, you know, basically put the raw aluminum in the mod vice and machined that into the fixture and left it in place. And then, uh, so it was really like a, I guess you call it a vice palette. I was interested in that because I'm looking at uh, mod vices as possible work holding on the Neo. So got a good chance to play around with those and get an idea of how big they are. They're super low profile, which is exactly what I want. 
And it looks like they come in, like I'm familiar with the steel ones that he makes, um, which are like half inch 13 bolts to go onto a standard fixture plate. So th those are, uh, I guess, his premium line. And then he's, he still makes the aluminum bodied uh, mod jaws, I'm sorry, mod vice with quarter inch bolts. So it's a little bit smaller scale vice. So I'm just kind of looking at both of them, seeing which one probably work best for me. I do like that the parallels are removable on the steel ones. So like if you kind of wear those out, I think they're machined into the body on the uh, aluminum ones. So if they kind of get messed up or something, you'd really have to either redeck the vice or figure out some other, you know, replace the, that particular jaw. But um, yeah, cause that's kind of, I think of that's, you know, if you machine into it, if it wears, I don't know if it's going to wear, but <laughs> doing aluminum and Delrin, but, um, but it is replaceable separately from the rest of the vice bodies. That's kind of neat on the steel, the steel body vice. Yeah. I really love the mod vice design and, and how it works. So um, trying to think of ways to use that on the pocket and see. Yeah. It's probably too big. Although the concept would work, I could scale it down a little bit. Yeah. It would definitely yeah. Work. Yeah. The con yeah, their concept, but scaled down to tiny version. Yeah, I think it's like uh, the the aluminum body uh, mod vice that uses the quarter inch bolts. Um, I think that was originally designed for the is it tag T A I. Oh yeah, yeah, for the tag. Yeah, works with the tag fixture plate. Um, but I think he's kind of standardized on the half inch thirteen bolt pattern for all this the fixture plates he's selling today. Oh, I was going to ask you, did you get a chance to look at the Tormach MX? I did. I didn't get to see it cut. Uh, just missed that. I think when we got there Thursday or Wednesday, I think uh, Ed had already run that test cut because the post was kind of up when I was walking in. Um, but I definitely got to look at it and kind of spend some time walking around it. I, I, my first impression was the new control looks really nice. I mean, it's the same, you know, it's Path Pilot, but they kind of got rid of the standalone PC and integrated it into the uh, control. Or actually, there might still be a PC somewhere. I don't think so. But um, they built like a, looks just like the Haas control as far as the or i mean there's a sheet metal box with touchscreen and keyboard all integrated and it looks really slick like i like that i like the color scheme on the new and the enclosure like the redesigned enclosure looks really good it had the bt30 spindle still had the ways and gibbs which is like not something i'd want to deal with personally but um i think the spindles beefed up too i think they have more horsepower across that whole m mx line um, and I don't know if the MX is faster as far as linear movements than the M. It's definitely faster than a Series 3. But yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know really what the difference is between the M and the MX. I think they both have servos. So they're probably the same speed. But uh, but you do get the BT30 on the MX, which is nice. Like, uh, I think I would trust that more than the TTS. Yeah, I, I, that's kind of the only reason why you'd buy that is because you want that BT30 older. So Yeah, in the class, they were running... Um, so basically, the we used all the machines available um, except for the MX. So we, you know, we had enough people to use the enough people in the class to have the TM3, the Haas TM3 going, uh, the VF2 SS. We didn't touch the VM3. I think that's set up for production. But um, there was a Tormach. I can't remember. I don't think anyone was using a 440. But there was a 770, 770 MX or maybe, or sorry, 770 and 770M, or maybe two of the 770Ms. So those are all being used. Um, actually, it may have been a 440. I can't remember. You basically got assigned one of those machines, and that's the one you worked with. I would have liked to have actually run on the Tormach, too. Just to, I've never run a Tormach, so I've been, I would have enjoyed that. But uh, not as much as what I really got to run. I mean, not as much as uh, running the 
the VF2. So, would you be interested in taking one of my uh, prizes for the Tormat classes and going to Wisconsin? Um, I think you could find someone who that would serve better. You know what I'm saying? Uh, someone more like interested in uh, Tormat. I appreciate the offer. Thanks. Yeah, uh, even the Lath one. I, don't, I remember you talking about that. Yeah. So I'll be back. I know for sure I'll be back um, for other classes at Saunders. So I make it, I'll probably have other opportunities. And we actually asked like everyone in the class, do you want to do the Haas? Do you want to do the Tormach? And everyone kind of got to self-select. So having done the Haas next time, I might say I'll do the Tormach. Although the next one's the five axis class. So we'll all be on the UMC 750, but let's try and get something, some new toy like uh, UMC 500, maybe who knows? I can't imagine you. I mean, who knows this? I mean, they all talked about not buying machines and all of a sudden they all have like a bunch of machines <laughs> coming in. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. If I, if I can swing it out there, I'll definitely join you on that five axis class. Yeah. I would think, I mean, just training alone would help justify, you know, that what he's got going on there is pretty smart, I think. So he's got, uh, you know, he's got the classes they seem to be going on pretty, pretty much all the time. Um, I think they're filling up when he, you know, when he puts one on the schedule, I think they're, they're for the most part full. Um, I know there was a class, um, so our, my class was two days, but, uh, Thursday and Friday, but there was a, um, three day, I want to say introduction to machining class that was running Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And that whole class also took the Thursday, Friday class. So we, you know, basically in even I joined them on Thursday. Um, but they'd already been there three days machining stuff, uh, the, the rest of the class mates. And so that was kind of neat. You know, there was a good mix of people that were fairly new to CNC and, and people that were kind of already doing it for a living or just trying to get a little better at it. Um, I, there was probably two, maybe th three other people that were kind of hobby, got a machine in the garage kind of guys. Everyone else was working in industry, like their employer had sent them there for training. Most of them were mechanical engineers that were just trying to understand what was on, on the shop floor a little better. So that was like, that was great. I thought that'd be a good way to kind of gain some insight into what your production people are having to deal with. Even if you don't make parts yourself, right? At least you're, if you're designing them and you're, you're uh, counting on someone else to be able to make it, this gives you some good insight to what they have to deal with, especially the work holding. Um, so the other class, and it's not on the books yet. I mean, this is my wish list. I don't know if John has any plans to do this, but uh, now that he has the lathe, I sure hope a CNC turning class shows up because I would definitely sign up for that. Yeah, because he's got live tooling, right? Yeah, live tooling, subspindle on the... Yeah. Yeah, and uh, he's got, you know... Uh, so I got to get up close look at how he tooled that machine up with the Capto work holding. Man, it's nice. It's like like loaded up with uh, Sandvik goodies. Very sweet setup. And he had the bar feeder. It wasn't hooked up yet. Um, he was just kind of hand feeding a two... I think it was like two and a half inch bar a D2 tool steel. That's what he was working on when I was there. Um, I don't know if he's going to be able to show that part. It was beautiful. I saw one, but it's a job shot part. So I don't think he'll be able to show the finished part. It's really nice. He was, he was just still kind of dialing in speeds and feeds. So I'm pretty sure he could be much more aggressive than he was. But, uh, I think literally that was like the second cut he'd made other than the, the chest piece that he did, the aluminum chest piece he did when he first got the machine. It's kind of scary when you first hear it spinning because it, it has that compensation so that when the tool gets closer to the center it starts to like really ramp up yeah and, i love that sound the, yeah the constant surface speed um yeah sounds sweet um i could watch that machine go all day like if that was all i did for two days i would have been happy <laughs> just sitting sitting there watching. 
Did did he have coolant in there already? Yes, he did. But the so he was cutting with a cutting D two tool steel with Sandvik inserts. So they actually run dry. They're supposed to run dry. Um, so that which was great because that means I got to see everything that was going on. And I'm sure. Yeah, because I was about to say when I run the lathe, I can't see anything because the coolant is just spitting on this rotating thing and just squirts everywhere on on the shield. Or on the glass. Well, just do tool steel or uh, hard, <laughs> do hard milling with uh, ceramic inserts. You don't have to run any coolant. <laughs> and the fireworks are pretty good on the ceramic inserts. But um, yeah, nothing, nothing cool. And then just watching like molten metals spew off the, the cutting surface. But that's not what he was doing. I think this was, I'm assuming this was in the annealed state. Um, and he was using carbide, but it's still pretty cool. Yeah, just seeing his enthusiasm for, you know, doing something new. That he hadn't really done before it was it was kind of neat i could i could understand the uh the excitement yeah i could definitely get hooked hooked on that myself so it's it's what winston and i have been imagining for you for the last like three months <laughs> yeah no i'm just talking about late like wow maybe i should get a late <laughs> but no I'm, I'm i don't i don't understand how he got so good at it so fast because uh like i said he hasn't had that machine very long he looked very comfortable competent handling it take a peek next time in fusion it's really there's not much to it yeah i don't think i would vent uh it took me a long time like i have no clue how to operate one of those anyway it was neat i think yana had a good time or yaniv had a good time too cool i'm excited for you and him man that's uh some really nice machines you guys got there yeah i think uh yaniv tapped his first hole today so uh with this studio <laughs> so it was a little bit of a it's kind of tricky you know between the fusion post and not really having run this video before um it takes a little while to get the successful run on that op especially tapping rigid tapping he sent me a picture right before the podcast uh, and i still thought it looked like very good threads in that uh, aluminum so excited for him that's very cool what do you guys got going on in the shop uh for me it's been programming lately uh a lot of programming to get stuff kind of ready in the queue um, uh, ordering stock, I'm going to be prepping it. And so that I'm going to try different work, uh, strategy this time. Um, I'm going to basically program like five parts and get stock for five parts done. I'm going to see how fast I can just nonstop get these things done back to back without having to stop in between and program something new and we'll see if I can increase my efficiency a little bit that way. So, um, got a couple things coming. We'll see how that turns out. But you Winston, um, the past couple days have, have kind of thrown me for a loop. Um, I thought I had a video schedule all down pat, but um, lately I've had to do a lot of speeds and feeds testing because uh, we're pushing out a new carbide create update with uh, speeds and feeds that are not like horrifically conservative, that it takes like hours to cut through like the one sixteenth inch like aluminum plate. Uh, so basically everything's going to be bumped up and empirically tested. So this past week I've just been like, uh, Rob's been really tightening the screws and putting pressure on me to, to generate data. Um, so that, that pushed off. I was going to release a polycarbonate video this week, but I think that'll have to be um, either the week uh, of Christmas or maybe New Year's, depending on when people are going to be watching. Um, besides that, I've been... Uh, just this whole weekend, I've been working on a commission part for a friend. Um, can't say what it is yet because it's going to be a present for someone. But uh, I, I was really like a little anxious about finishing that this week because I'm flying home um, 
on Thursday. So I need, like, I want to give this part at least 48 hours, 72 hours to, to cure after I put finish on it. So I did manage to get that done today, um, and it, I just need to integrate the last couple parts for it. And then now that the pressure is sort of off on that front, I can work on a my own Star Wars project, which is going to be a graphite uh, first order stormtrooper helmet. Oh, awesome! And uh, yeah, the the graphite part itself is done. Um, the model I got off Thingiverse was a little too low poly for my taste. You can actually see the faceting in the graphite. Um, but I am going to whip up a really quick uh, aluminum pedestal to stick this thing in since I really don't want to touch the graphite once I part this thing off. Yeah, I think graphite really, really shows the detail, right? It does. Um, but it also picks up like finger oils and like you can see the slight discoloration. So I'm going to grab this thing with gloves after I part it off, shove it into aluminum and just never touch it again. It can sit on my desk uh, until the end of time. Are you just vacuuming the dust particles? Pretty much. Um, I hook up a little Festool vacuum hose right in front of where I'm cutting. Uh, that's uh, running through like a probably the same uh, bag that the vacuum came with because I'm pretty sure they've never changed it. Um, so because it's original, it should still be HEPA rated. Um, and then... Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, I try and tap... There are still chunks of graphite that escape the vacuum hose, the bigger pieces that come off, but um, as long as you don't let them stick around too long and like maybe like find their way into like the tool probe area or like the stepper motors, um, it... Well, even if it does happen, it's cheap to replace and I can figure it out. So, uh, yeah. It's better to experiment on a cheaper machine than uh, a six-figure machine. That's a pretty cool idea. That is a cool idea. I gotta be able to release this by Wednesday. That's kind of like the uh, Beauty and the Beast rose, but with a stormtrooper yeah. helmet. And crap <laughs> I, I get excited if I, if I can get aluminum bracket knocked out in a week. <laughs> so, pretty sweet. Yeah, it's just gonna be a, a simple 2.5D part. Um, hexagon shape. And I'm going to do a little engraving of the First Order logo, since it also, um, that logo actually uh, is a hexagon, so with a circular inlay. So it works perfectly for this, uh, this application. Four more days to the movie. I know, but I, I don't think we're going to be uh, clear of the Baby Yoda memes for a while. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> the one other thing I've kind of been spending a little bit of time on... Um, Chris from Daytron sent me uh, the solid model for the Neo. And then um, I've been basically just laying out various work holding options that I'm exploring. I have that orange vice now um, and the Lang, of course, it comes with it and looking at just basically various ways to make subplates and mount those on the table um, in combination with like the vacuum or the fourth axis. There was no fourth axis model that I could find. <laughs> I should have asked because there was one, but um, um, I just for fun, I kind of modeled it up myself and spent a lot of time, like even the Daytron model, it was just kind of basic textures. And I think it's the same. I've seen that model in some of their like marketing literature. So it was probably just for like they did for the marketing team, but I went ahead and put like proper textures on it and, or proper, uh, material. Is that right? What's it? Yeah. Appearances. Thank you. 
and like it's rendering pretty nice now. So spend a little bit of time just kind of getting more acquainted with the fusion renderer, um, which it really does produce some really good output. If you can kind of manage this little quirks, uh, used up all my cloud credits in the process. <laughs> my, last, <laughs> yeah, my last few remaining cloud credits uh, went to that project. So speaking of uh, cloud credits, have you gotten a chance to play with generative? No, it's, so that's the other thing I've going to try to do before the end of the year. Uh, I sent you guys the link. You guys probably know about the contest. So Autodesk is running a generative, generative design contest, and I'll make sure the link is in the show notes. Pretty good prizes. I think uh, you have until the end of the month to complete it. Yeah, it looks pretty good. Uh, I don't think I'm going to enter in the contest, but I, do, I am definitely going to play around with generative, generative design for a couple of things I was thinking about. Uh, that it might be good at. So I'm, I'm more interested in getting the cool look out of it than, you know, any engineering, uh, advantage you might get by running GD. <laughs> yeah. At least for initially, I, I do actually like the look on certain things, especially on like plates and brackets, which <laughs> Winston's probably cringing right now, but, um, yeah, actually I, I want to start working on modeling, um, kind of a shelf system to hold my, let me double stack my, my Bantam tools machines. So, uh, but I want it to be pretty rigid. So like the top machine doesn't kind of rock too much or when it's cutting. So I'm going to try to maybe make the aluminum sides. I want to kind of GD those to make them kind of a space frame and then machine them on the Neo once it comes in, put it all together. Yeah. You know, I could just do 80, 20, but I, this sounds like more fun. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah. That's the only thing I could come up with <laughs> for like between now and the end of the year that I have any chance of uh, finishing the modeling on. I, I came up with an idea that I wanted to do. I was, I was looking at my mouse and I was wondering if I could get generative design to come up with a pretty cool shape. Um, I'm not sure how I would get it to know that where my hand touches the mouse is where I want there to be like stock surfaces, but it can go to town on anything else as long as it, you know, I don't know, covers like my palm and my two fingers or something like that. And then try to integrate two clickers uh, for that and the button, the mule, uh, the, the scroll down button or the wheel. Sorry. I wonder if it would be able to spit out something cool that I actually could machine on the pocket and see. There's a couple mice that um, sort of have like a segmented body. And so it's really just coming up with like you know, a little pad under your index finger, middle finger area where your thumb rests and where your palm rests and everything under that can be just whatever structure you need it to be. So you might even be able to just buy a mouse like that, pull off the shell and just redesign the internals. Yeah, that'd be cool. Let's see. I don't know. It ends at the 30th, right, of this month? Yeah, or like the 1st or 2nd in January, but you'll lose access to GD on December at the end of December 31st if you're not paying. I mean, the, you'll lose the free access, so you better be done by then. <laughs> then it gives you a couple of days, I think, to submit after after that. Did, did you guys check to see if you had cloud credits? Oh, Eddie said he was almost out, but Winston, do you have a bunch of cloud credits? I have 125, I think, but not like it doesn't look like an infinite supply. I'm so confused. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I have an infinite amount. I guess we'll find out soon enough. Maybe you've got a, a sugar daddy at Autodesk. <laughs> <laughs> well, boys, is there anything else that we got going on? That's it for me. Yeah, I'm pretty much all tapped out. I'm about to go back into the garage and start machining aluminum again. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> okay, guys. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up, and I'll say goodnight. Until next time. It'll be after Christmas, right? 
Oh, that's right. Yes, it will. So happy holidays, guys. Yeah, happy holidays. Catch you guys soon. Enjoy your holidays, and uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.